KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint. Shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, we're recapping the best of our segments from earlier this year. We're discussing the way crime is covered by local news and the impact it has. The media had a saying that if it bleeds, it leads. And that's a stereotype that is still worldwide. Our Newsmaker of the Week helps us understand the challenges for students who are exposed to violence in their homes. A lot of these children are becoming conditioned to the way that they feel is the appropriate way to react. And we highlight a North Philly native working to end poverty by making money management skills more accessible to youth. I don't have children, but it's like I want to leave something behind. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. KYW's Antoinette Lee here, and welcome back to Flashpoint. So I want to start off this week a little different. Now, because I think this story is important to the panel discussion, which is about the trust and the relationships between the community and local news. This weekend, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I came across a post by Tariq Glasgow, a community leader and panelist you'll hear from later. He had a picture of the logos for some of the local news outlets with a caption that stated in part that the news is contributing to the trauma and violence in our city. Now, this wasn't the first strong criticism I'd seen that day, and it came as almost all of the local news outlets here in Philly were reporting the 400th homicide of the year. So I decided that now would be the good time for this conversation. So I said all of that to say in part that reporters are people too. We use social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're easy to find on there. You can reach out to us. We see you. We hear you. Now let's dig in. So here to have an open and honest discussion with us on Flashpoint, we have Tariq Glasgow. He is a community leader in Grace Ferry and founder of the Young Chances Foundation. Alex Silverman is the brand manager and program director here at KYW News Radio. And Jessica Beard is a trauma surgeon at Temple University. She's also the director of research for the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Antoinette. Now, Tariq, your Instagram post is part of the reason we're having this discussion today. Now, in the post, you stated in part that, quote, major news outlets are contributing to the trauma and play a direct role in the violence across America, especially in Philly. Can you tell us what you meant by that? First of all, I just want to thank Antoinette for being in the forefront of making our voices heard. For me, it's the continuously seeing the images that play out in our community. As far as the outlets, Every time you turn on the news, it's like a goal to get to the 500. There's an image of black kids or black and brown kids being killed throughout the city. And now there's women that, that are being highlighted. And it seems like the stories are becoming heavier in a rotation. And they're not even trying to acknowledge their graduations, um, acknowledge that the block captains that are keeping these blocks on. There are so many essential volunteers that we see out here in our community that are doing the work, but it's not highlighted. And sometimes they get highlighted at their death. Um, one of the things that I respect in our community is we try to give our, our leaders and our children their flowers down because the only time that they get flowers we see now is if they're on somebody's t-shirt or on the news because of death. Jessica, what are your major concerns when it comes to local news coverage and gun violence? I totally agree with uh, Tyree. I first got interested in this topic in trying to really understand why gun violence happens in Philadelphia. Every day I take care of people who've been shot as a trauma surgeon, which means that I you know, do 
operations. I have to tell family members that their loved ones have passed away. And when I first moved to Philadelphia, I was really shocked by how normalized it was. And so I went to local media reports to try to get a sense of what was happening. And what I found were these episodic reports, these short reports that basically follow a law enforcement or police narrative. That led me to actually do research on this topic. And right now we're talking to patients who've been shot about their own perceptions on reporting on gun violence. You know, they're not giving consent for those reports. They don't appreciate that there's a lot of negativity. And they also feel like a lot of the times when they're described, it's inaccurate. And it may be reinforcing biases about the people who are shot in Philadelphia. Alex, what's your reaction to hearing those concerns? Can you explain why and how we cover crime the way we do? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm not here to act like I have all the answers on this topic because it is a very difficult subject. And, and we have an obligation as media to make sure people in the region understand what's going on. And, you know, especially people who don't live in neighborhoods affected by gun violence. We have an obligation to make sure that they hear about what's happening and hear about what those neighborhoods are like. So anytime we do cover these things, one thing I do emphasize is to not just rely on the police narrative to get there, to talk to people in the neighborhood and to not just try to find people who have information on that incident, but also to talk about what it is like to live there. So somebody can really start to relate to people who deal with this on a day-to-day basis. And it, it is really challenging because often when we hear about things that happen from day to day, you know, all we have is that initial sort of bare bones narrative. I just want to just like summarize because a lot of people look at our organizations and a lot of organizations on the ground as, you know, being able to be at the table. A lot of times people look at black and brown in particular communities for that. And one of the, the things that I got in the email was the media had a saying that if it bleeds, it leads. And that's a stereotype that is still ongoing. And it goes to the narrative that the city of Philadelphia has $6,500 to bury someone, but they don't have $6,500 set aside to let them live. And that just goes into the belief that they rather see the goal of the 500 deaths instead of the goal of 50,000 children graduating. These are the type of things that I think needs to be on the forefront. I agree completely. Telling positive stories, and it's, it is a big focus of ours, and I know a lot of organizations yeah. try, but it is difficult when we have a crisis going on, and we're trying to figure out how to cover that crisis and make sure that it gets the attention that it deserves without making it sound like this is just another thing that happened. Jessica, I know that you are working with reporters to improve reporting on gun violence. Yeah, well, we're kind of at the data collection phase. So we're actually downloading all local TV news reports on gun violence and looking at them and seeing what they actually contain. And we're sort of in the early stages of speaking with journalists. Media research shows that when you read reports that are episodic, that are focused on the episode, that you tend to blame the individual, that you don't see the potential areas where things need to improve, right? And all of us know that there's a direct connection between historic racism, structural racism, and gun violence and the places where gun violence happens. And as a result, the people that gun violence largely happens to, or the the populations that are affected by gun violence in Philadelphia. So if you're constantly telling these episodic reports, number one, you're traumatizing the people who the reports are about. As you mentioned, Alex, you want to tell people about gun violence who aren't 
maybe being impacted by gun violence, but what about the people who are being impacted by gun violence who are consuming your news? And then there's the other side, which is that if you keep telling these episodic reports, you can reinforce stereotypes and biases by dehumanizing the victims of gun violence to people who maybe aren't experiencing gun violence. And again, no one has all the solutions, right? This is what we're trying to figure out. What does each stakeholder say might be the best or the most ethical, perhaps, reporting on gun violence? I would say that consent from the people that you're reporting about is very important. And what about actually going to people who've been injured in a, in a follow-up story and maybe telling the story about their recovery? What about going to people like Tyreek and talking about solutions? Alex, as program director, how can the community give our station feedback that you and other leadership will be receptive to? What are the best methods for reaching out? Reach out to me directly, alex at kywnewsradio.com. That'll get to me and I will respond to you. Thank you, Jessica and Tariq. Any final thoughts? Oh, I I really appreciate you having this conversation. I think that this is like a really important step forward. Um, I think that collaboration is so important um, when it comes to gun violence, right? Like we're all in this together from, you know, me at the hospital, Tyreek out in the community, Alex and Antoinette at the radio station and in media, like literally we all have to work together. And But we all have to, number one, make sure we're not causing trauma, right? And listen to the people that we're reporting about. And then also kind of look towards those solutions and hold folks accountable. A lot of things we try to cast the blame on, but if we look inside of ourselves, we can, we could do a lot of, a lot of change. Um, I think just for doing the data, because a lot of stuff that we speak on, it really has no meat behind it. And, you know, I, I appreciate people supporting our organization, our community in a way that it's not about the balance, it's about uh, tomorrow. So, you know, I thank KYW, I thank y'all for just bringing this out because, again, you know, the truth is that I'm a minority and a lot of people don't hear this point of view. And I just thank you. We're going to continue to do what we have to do as far as the intensive uh, work and prevention. Tariq, Alex, and Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Our newsmaker of the week is Angela Anderson. She's a therapist with a background in child psychology. KYW Sheridan Howard spoke with her about her current role for Philadelphia Public Schools, helping students cope with the pressures of school, home, and peers. Children exposed to violence in the home are often also victims themselves. And according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they're also at risk of developing long-term mental as well as physical health problems. Angela Anderson, master's level therapist with a focus in trauma and child psychology, says when it comes to domestic violence, children are the invisible victims. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for having me. Now, Angela, you say in your line of work, you see the effects that domestic violence has on children. Well, I've been a mental health professional for close to 10 and probably over about 10 years by now, I started in the therapeutic foster care social work circuit. Therapeutic foster care is any child that has has experienced any severe trauma that has caused their removal from their biological family. So every child that I started my career with had been through some significant level of trauma where I'd provide therapeutic services for them. Currently, I'm a therapist within the school districts. Um, I work work in multiple schools in uh, North Philadelphia deal with children that have uh, behavioral concerns to the point where it's affecting their ability to learn, their peer relationships, and just their overall quality of life. And domestic violence really does have an impact on children, and it shows itself in specific ways. How does it show itself, and what should adults be looking for? Because you say that kids are really good at hiding things, but they're not good at hiding things when they're hurt. 
I don't want to say easy to um, identify children that have been victims of abuse. What I think that I see with children that have been abused, a lot of complacency with violent situations where most children may jump at a loud noise. You have children that have been in abusive homes that, you know, seem very calm in a chaotic situation. They seem very comfortable and they seem as though, you know, it's just another day for them. So what you see is children also acting out knee-jerk reactions as far as their interventions with their peers. You'll find that children that have been victims of, of abuse, they may have poor impulse control. And you find that their coping skills might seem to be rooted in some level of aggression. So all throughout my life, I went to Philadelphia public schools and there was a culture, a specific culture. What are you seeing in Philadelphia that is unique to Philadelphia with regard to how kids deal with domestic violence, how kids deal with violence in general. Yeah, so having the exposure to the children in the schools, what I think that I'm seeing as far as understanding their history and knowing that some of these kids have been through um, abuse, it's violence versus violence. What I'm seeing in Philadelphia is um, the right way to beget violence is with violence and that to me just seems a lot lot of conditioning, a lot of um, unfortunate home training. What I'm finding is that a lot of these children are becoming conditioned. Conditioned to the way that they feel is the appropriate way to react when they get frustrated or annoyed or kind of thrown off kilter. And the way that violence seems to be the only way for the, for some of these kids, as well as seeing parents that are sending their kids to school with that mentality as well. Hey, I, I can't lie. I was told that too. They hit you, hit them back. My parents always told me that. It was a matter of survival. Don't be a sucker. If they hit you, you better, you better go ahead and hit them back. So you're saying that isn't the right approach. So what should parents be doing? Instead of kind of instructing the child to seek assistance from an adult, talk to somebody about it. Because what I find is that when the, st- when the schools try to intervene with some of these parents, they're not willing to change their mentality. I told my child that's what he needs to do. That to me, I feel like is a little bit more of an edge, a Philly edge that I've noticed. And how do we offset that? Well, honestly, what I what I found the schools to do is a lot of these parents are kind of set in their ways and just understanding the boundaries and respecting the parents' wishes because you don't really get anywhere without doing that and just letting them understand that that might be your mentality in your home. But when the child comes to school, these rules have to be different and we need your help with that. And let's talk about how this isn't really isolated to one person, one thing. Abuse has long arms and a long reach. A lot of times you say that kids in the home are also being abused and and this has a ripple effect in their lives. Sure. Um, unfortunately, many victims of domestic violence, many children that have been exposed to domestic violence um, are often victims of physical abuse in the home as well. Those children have a greater risk of becoming more violent in their future relationships. As far as short-term effects, children can end up just feeling fearful and anxious, on guard, wondering when their next violent event may occur. Okay, let's break this down into simple age groups. For breaking it down into ages, for thinking about preschool children, you might experience some bedwetting, thumb sucking, increased crying, whining, difficulty falling asleep, stuttering, and they might show some severe separation anxiety when you try to drop them off. For talking about school age children, you'd be seeing guilt and blame, low self esteem, poor grades, less friends, uh, getting in trouble more often, um, some physiological uh, responses such as stomach aches, headaches. For talking about teenagers, uh, you might, exp- might see them acting out, fighting, skipping school, just overall risky behaviors, and getting into kind of bullying behavior as well. When we talk about kids, people think that kids are resilient. They'll get over it. 
you know, eventually this will all go away. Long-term effects are an issue for kids. So can you tell me some of those long-term effects and then how you're offsetting them with treatment? So for a young man who sees his mother be abused, that young man is about 10 times more likely to abuse as an adult. For a girl who grows up where her father beats her mother or significant other, that young female is up to six times more likely to become sexually abused in her adult life. Overall, the long-term effects increase health problems, depression, anxiety, things as simple as diabetes could be affected, obesity, heart disease. It can all be side side effects of growing up in a domestic violence household. I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, the actual medical aspect of it. The psychology is directly connected to the physiology as well, and sometimes the medical health down the line. Can you explain to us how these things can be connected and how kids are especially vulnerable? Okay. I mean, obviously, talking about children, they're formulating their their relationship with life and the universe and right and wrong um, in real time. And they only have pretty much, you know, a small window to formulate what the world should mean and how it should treat them. And so what ends up happening to these kids is they start to think that this is the way that the world's supposed to treat them. They get comfortable with chaos. They get comfortable with being disrespected. They get comfortable with violence being the way that things get solved. And that leads to them have, like formulating maladaptive coping skills when it comes to their own life and their own ability to kind of deal with things in a more health, from a healthier perspective. These children, if that course corrected with some level of um, treatment and ignore acknowledgement will just unfortunately be in a place where they would just end up repeating the cycle and, and assuming that this is the way things are supposed to be. Now let's have a real conversation here. Is there a connection? In Philadelphia, we're seeing an increase in gun violence and street violence. Now, is there a connection? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, for fact of statistics, 15 million children in the U.S. live in homes. Domestic violence happens more than once. And so that makes these children at a greater risk of repeating the cycle. Um, so there's definitely a connection between awareness and prevention and treatment to help offset the cyclical nature of domestic violence and how that kind of appears for these young children. So what are some go-to, some basic treatments they're using to offset some of these issues for kids? Um, I mean, for the anxiety and depression, cognitive behavioral therapy, the form of talk therapy is very widely utilized to help children at least come to a place where they can start to feel safe with some thoughts and feelings that may have felt a little uncomfortable for them. So it's creating that safe space, making sure that you have that cognitive behavioral therapy piece, which connects um, behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. So people are able to start understanding that their thoughts impact their feelings, which impact their behaviors. And a lot of times when you're talking about these domestic violence situations, it's not something that's talked about in daylight and these children have to suppress a lot of things. And so that cognitive behavioral therapy piece is going to be very important for these children to begin to understand what's right, what's wrong, what felt uncomfortable for them and give them a, a forum to be able to work through it. When you think about kids in domestic violence, what are things that adults really need to do to make a priority and really pay attention to close attention? Like I said, I feel, I feel like creating that safe space is important. Allowing children to have the opportunity to talk about their fears. Allowing children to talk about, you know, things that concern them, things that made them feel uncomfortable. Talking to them about healthy relationships and what that should look like. Being honest about being honest about some things that may have occurred. As well as talking to them about boundaries. Thank you so much, Angela, for having this really difficult but poignant conversation. Thank you for having me. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. 
The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee, and this week's changemaker is Crystal Evans. She's the creator of Money Talks Education. It's a nonprofit working to end poverty by teaching youth financial literacy skills. Now, Crystal, she has an amazing story. She grew up in North Philly, right on Girard Avenue. In 2009, she was actually homeless. So she understands the implications of missing out on education surrounding money management. I never got the lessons, and no one ever taught me about money. It's like there's so much that I don't know about managing money. The turning point for Crystal was when she started cleaning houses for money. Eventually, that blossomed into a thriving business with a team of people who clean corridors around Philly. It's called Bubbles, Bubbles, Bubbles. Started it in 2009. I created a lot of jobs through the janitorial service, and I also became a member of the National Small Business Association, and every year I would go to the White House. i get the chance to network, and they would set up conferences for me to meet with local representatives. The first time Crystal even heard the word financial literacy, she was in a room with then President Barack Obama. So I raised my hand and I'm like, okay, what can I take back to my community? I said, we don't know how to build wealth. We don't know how to create wealth. What can I take back? And it was the first time that I heard financial literacy. I didn't know what financial literacy was, never heard of it. She began to do the research. She learned that other people in her community were also not talking about money and frankly, not learning the skill sets to manage it or build wealth. So she figured that was a way she could help improve her community. I decided to go to school. I got an associate's degree in accounting, a bunch of certificates in uh, business finance. And then I've worked a- amongst some some people who are very successful that mentored me as well. Now she's a licensed financial advisor. She takes her financial literacy lessons to classrooms and recreation centers all around the city. She's also helped co-author a curriculum book which introduces teenagers to personal finance. Road to Riches. It is a newly published curriculum. It's available at Walmart, Target, Amazon. We published it globally. Cool, cool part to not just having the, the curriculum is that we have an app that has a gamification feature to to it, which highlights the book and it allows the kids to engage in healthy competition amongst peers, cohorts. It can be schools competing against one another. So Crystal opened up to me about losing her younger brother to gun violence in 2014. And she says that's part of what motivates her. Losing someone to gun violence isn't an easy thing. That's something you live with for the rest of your life. So for me, it's a part of the healing. For her, financial literacy is a solution to poverty and the other issues it intersects with. She has a plan in the works for a citywide financial literacy competition to help educate underserved families on building generational wealth. I don't have children, but it's like I want to leave something behind. You can learn more at moneytalks.education or find them on Instagram at moneytalks.edu. That's it for this week's Flashpoint. If you know a changemaker we should highlight next, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. I want to wrap us up with this quote. Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. The show was produced by RN Vulture, Sherrod A. Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, thanks for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.